I was in sixth grade, and I won't remember all the details, because we'll just say it was well over 20 years ago. But I know my teacher then kind of developed a, a system or a pattern, if you will, of whenever we were studying certain subjects or certain topics, that if anyone had a family member who was kind of an expert in that topic or that historical event or whatever it may be, that she would invite those relatives to come into the class and give a little presentation to us, and then us as the students could ask questions. One day we were studying World War II, and a classmate of mine, her grandfather, served in World War II. And I remember that he came into the classroom in his wheelchair, and as he started to share about his service, it came out that shortly after arriving in Europe, he was captured. And he spent the time of our involvement until the very end as a prisoner of war. Now, there were a lot of details that I'm sure he didn't share our group of 11, 12-year-olds. But we were then able to ask questions. And if you've spent more than about three minutes with me, you probably know that I ask a lot of questions just naturally. That's one of my ways that I listen and that I engage. So I was asking a lot of questions. I don't remember most of the questions I asked, but I remember one, not because of what the question was, but because of his answer. So he was a prisoner of war, and he shared about some of his hardships. But I asked him, did you ever wonder about what would happen if we lost the war and if you were never freed or rescued? And I remember because he got real quiet for a moment and then he kind of leaned forward a little bit in his wheelchair and he said, no, never. Because you can't survive in that environment if you give up your hope that it will be over. And that has really stuck with me. The core message of Psalm 30 is it really there's a lot of things that are kind of bundled up into Psalm 30. But a lot of the core messages is it's, it's a gratitude for today. It's a call for us to rejoice that we've been given another day to praise God regardless of what this day looks like. We hear from the psalmist that they experience tragedy. A close call with death with references to Sheol. That along with weeping and grief that comes along with facing our own mortality, that there's all this bundle of emotions. And through that, we hear the promise. And we hear what is not a promise. Psalm 30 is not a promise of an easy, pain-free, worry-free, stress-free life. It is a promise that every night will give way to a dawn full of joy and rejoicing in that joy. Now, the book of Psalms is a book of liturgy. It's a book of songs and a book of prayers to be used in worship like when we are gathered here this morning. Our call to worship, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Does that sound familiar to us? It's a psalm. Psalm 118. In addition to being great to use for worship, studying the Psalms is also a great way to increase our understanding and knowledge of the rest of Scripture. See, a, a lot of Scripture points and references other parts of Scripture, other stories. 
but the Psalms especially do so. They are constantly referencing, and what makes the Psalms somewhat unique is they often reference without explaining. Here's what that looks like. If you and I are talking in the parking lot, and I share with you that I'm going through a difficult time, and in the middle of it I say, you know what, I'm just going to let it go, let it go, can't hold it back anymore, let it go, let it go, turn away and slam the door. And then if I just continued in our conversation, that's what a psalm does. But if I was an epistle and a letter, I wouldn't just reference and move on, I would explain it. And I'd say, I was referencing the movie Frozen, which came out 10 years ago. Seriously, 10 years ago, November 2013, isn't that crazy? I'm feeling older than I should this morning with these references. But right, there's a difference between referencing and moving on and saying, I'm going to reference and then we're going to dive into detail and why we talked about that. But, so when studying the scripture, but especially Psalms, it's always worth it to dig a little deeper. That's what we did in our Wednesday Bible study on this psalm when we looked at 2 Samuel 12. Now in 2 Samuel, we have the story of David and Bathsheba. Here is a super fast recap that does not do the whole story justice but pick up in 2 Samuel later this afternoon with all that free time we have, right? Yeah, I got a couple smiles from that. Do we have lots of free time? I can preach longer. (laughs) No, no, not a lot of free time? Okay. So here's a super fast recap. It's spring. With the season of spring, the king is supposed to take his army and go out and do battles and conquer and get wealth and resources and new land for the country, for the territory. That's David's job. The army gets up, and David says, nah, you all go on without me. You all take my place. I'm going to stay home and sit on the couch. That's actually what Scripture says. Seriously. 2 Samuel 11, verse 2. David is on the couch while the army leaves. So David's sitting back, relaxing on the couch, not where he's supposed to be. He goes to peek at Bathsheba while she's bathing, looking where he is not supposed to be looking. Finds out she's married, says, I don't care. Finds out her husband is fighting in the battles that David is supposed to be at. He doesn't care. Makes Bathsheba come over anyway. Bathsheba becomes pregnant. David tries to trick her husband, Uriah. But Uriah is a loyal guy to his soldiers. Doesn't even know that David's trying to trick him, but still doesn't fall for it. And then David says, well, if you won't fall for that, he sets out a series of orders to guarantee that Uriah dies when he goes back to battle. And that's what happens, and Uriah dies. That's the super fast recap. Then I want to share with you 2 Samuel chapter 12, the first half of it or so. The Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to David. Nathan came to David and said, There were two men in a certain city, one rich and one poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, just one little lamb that he had bought. He brought it up, it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat his meager fare and drink from his own cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. The rich man didn't want to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the traveler, so he took the poor man's lamb and used that to prepare food for the guest. David heard this story and was great. his anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no pity. Nathan said to David, you're the man. 
David, you're the rich man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king. I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom, gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. For you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and in broad daylight. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child born to you from Bathsheba shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The Lord struck the child whom Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became very ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child. David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him, urging him to rise from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we tell him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, he perceived that the child was dead, And David said to his servants, is the child dead? They said, he is dead. Then David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. Then he went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while it was alive. But when the child died, you rose and ate food. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, and the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. So there's a lot we could spend time unpacking in that story. We're not going to have time this morning to unpack most of it, but it's important to have that as a backdrop. Because if you have that story as a backdrop, and you think back to Psalm 30, in reference of this story, we can see clearly that David made many mistakes. And David made some really bad mistakes. There's no excusing David's actions here. And part of the redemption that we have here is that he goes, I I sinned. I did some bad things. But David and Bathsheba also went through some of the worst possible pain in this life, losing a child. And as much as we can pile on David for the many things he did wrong, he does have that redemption in verse 20. After finding out he lost his child, then David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and worshipped. Some early manuscripts have here that David also changed out of his sackcloth. 
a sackcloth being literally a sack that becomes a garment that one would wear as a sign of mourning, of humility, of acknowledging our own mortality and the mortality of those around us. And Psalm 30 attributes David as the author. So David has this experience and then writes verse 11. You turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Psalm 30, at its core, is about holding on to hope when we are in the worst possible, imaginable situations. It's not about hoping when things are good. It's about hoping when things are really, really bad and still having the belief and the trust that God is good. And because God is good, life will be good again too. And even if this life ends, we know what comes next will be better than anything of this world. I have one more story to share with you this morning. Unless you'd like two more stories, because I did cut one. You want two more? One more? Three more? Can I get four? Five more! Paul in the back with five. Can I get a six? One, oh, Roger, Roger says one more. Okay. We'll do one more. One more. So you may know the name Nathan Sharansky. Is that name familiar to anybody? If not, you're in for a treat. Nathan Sharansky was born in the USSR in 1948. He was very intelligent. As a child, he was a chess prodigy. He graduated from the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology with a degree in applied mathematics. In 1973, 25 years old, he decided he wanted to leave Russia, he was Jewish, and move to Israel. 1973. This is during the Cold War. And Russia decided they would not allow him to leave. And their official reasoning was that he had state secrets. He then became, uh, he became a part of a group that was late, later labeled, or a term used, called a refusenik a group of people who the USSR refused to let immigrate, immigrate with an E, to leave Russia. The vast majority of this group, including Natan, were people, were Jewish citizens who were wanting to leave Russia, leave the USSR, and move to the relatively newly formed state of Israel. In response to this, he decided he would become political, and he would become outspoken. Do you think that's a safe move to do in the USSR in the 70s? It was not. So they charged him as a spy, they arrested him, and in 1977, they threw him into jail. The day before he was arrested, he received a gift from his wife, a small, thin book. This book contained the Psalms. Only the Psalms, but all of the Psalms. Quick Bible trivia, how many Psalms are there? Anybody? 100 and 150, we got it, good job. So he had this psalm book and he cherished this psalm book. In prison, he would have to lie to the guards about what it was so that he could keep it. There was a page in the front, you know, they have that page saying where the book was printed. He had to tore that page out because the book was printed in Israel. And in the USSR, you could not have a book that was published in the West. He told his guards that it wasn't a religious book because you couldn't have religious books. And it was actually a book of folk stories. And when the guards would take the book and try to read it to see what it was, they couldn't read it because it was written in Hebrew. 
So even though the guards didn't know exactly what it was, they could tell it was a cherished possession of his. And any time if he got a little bit out of line, or if they just wanted to punish him for the fun of it, they would take that book away. And every time that book was taken away, he would refuse to work in the prison, and he would refuse to eat until his book was returned. Because of him refusing to work and to eat, he spent half of his time in solitary confinement, which remains one of the cruelest things we still do to human beings today. That book of Psalms became his connection, his reminder of his own humanity, a reminder of his God-given worth, a source of hope, and he cherished it. In 1986, nine years later, half of that time in solitary confinement, his fortunes changed. Nathan Sharansky became the first political prisoner released by Mikhail Gorbachev. There was a prisoner swap between the USSR and the United States. And it happened in winter like the scene out of a movie. The swap would happen on a bridge where the prisoners would run across the bridge. This was a bridge between West and East Germany where three years before the wall comes down, okay? So they have this prisoner swap running across the bridge. The swap begins and things are going smoothly at first. As Nathan is exchanged, he looks at, in his eyes, his new captor. They didn't tell him what was going on. And he looks at his new captor and says, where's my book? He didn't have his psalm book. Where's my book? And the guy says, come with me. You have everything you can have. We got to go. You think Nathan listened to him? He dropped to his knees in the snow and refused to leave until he got his book. He got his book. And he got his book, and then he went on the plane, and as he boarded the plane, that is when he was told that there was a prisoner swap, and he was got to be free, and where he's going. And do you know what his first words were when he discovered that he was got to be free after nine years? I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up. And did not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you brought up my soul from Sheol, restored me to life from among those gone down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his faithful ones, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes in the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you had established me as a strong mountain. You hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cried, and to the Lord I made supplication. What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be gracious to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned my mourning into dancing. You have taken off my sackcloth and clothed me with joy so that my soul may praise you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Amen? Amen.